We're in the Seven Stars, a pub which claims to be the oldest boozer in London. Now there's a statement guaranteed to start an argument. And there are judges nearby to settle this dispute. Because the Seven Stars is next to the Royal Courts of Justice. The pub was built in 1602, and back then it was called the Leg and the Seven Stars. Somewhere during its history, it lost its leg. Becoming just the Seven Stars. Given this name to attract Dutch visitors, a reference to the seven provinces of the Netherlands. And in those times, this area near Fleet Street and close to the River Thames was popular with Dutch sailors and settlers. In 1666, the pub was just a couple of streets away from being engulfed in the Great Fire of London. And Dutchmen drinking here during those days must have supped nervously. Because Britain went to war with Holland three times. London was full of propaganda, depicting the Dutch as drunks, frogs and hogs. One pamphlet claiming a Dutchman was... An unfinished man. One that nature made less than others. A Dutchman can never be a true friend, loyal subject or a good neighbour. Englishmen thought the Dutch could only fight if they got drunk. The origins of the phrase Dutch courage. During the 1800s, many of the pub's punters must have wondered if their fortunes were in the stars. The rickety old wood-beam building is located on Carey Street. And in the 1800s, this was the location for the bankruptcy court. So if someone said they were on Carey Street, it meant they were going bankrupt. Today, the Seven Stars has a mini-museum of ancient barristers' wigs and periwigs in the pub window. The pub cat proudly sports a judge's silk collar. And it's the haunt of paparazzi, waiting to photo anyone newsworthy outside the high courts. So, is the Seven Stars the oldest alehouse in London? We're surrounded by lawyers, so we don't want to get it wrong. We will defer then to historic England who look after the country's heritage. And they say that it is the oldest boozer in London. Our pub walk has brought us a few streets from the Seven Stars to Fleet Street. Taking its name from the River Fleet, once a rancid public toilet. The river now runs underground. The street has been accused of polluting the modern world with hack journalism. Because this is where printing and newspapers lived for centuries. The first printer set up here in the 1500s, a German known as Winken de Verde. The word, a perfect name for a printer. The street is home to one of the great literary pubs, Ye Oldie Cheshire Cheese. Or as it should be pronounced, THE Old Cheshire Cheese. Indulge us a moment in Pedant's Corner to explain this. Ye Oldie is a pseudo-anachronism. The Y in Ye is a substitute for the old English letter Thorn. Which disappeared from English about 500 years ago to be replaced by the TH sound. When printing began here on Fleet Street, they didn't have the symbol for Thorn. So they substituted it for the closest looking letter, a Y. Over time, Lots of pubs and curiosity shops called themselves Ye Olde in order to give their establishment a ring of authenticity. But the Cheshire cheese does not need that. There's been a pub at this location since 1538. The first cheese melted in the Great Fire of London. 
The current wood panel version was rebuilt here in 1667, the year after the fire. People were probably thirsty after the inferno. There are claims that a list of London's literary greats have drunk here, including Charles Dickens, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and P.G. Woodhouse. Though Woodhouse's characters were members of posh London clubs, the author himself preferred the rougher-edge pubs, writing in a letter... Yesterday I looked in at the Garrick at lunchtime, took one loathing glance at the mob, and went off to lunch by myself at the Cheshire Cheese. Three centuries ago, the pub's upstairs room was covered with pornographic tiles. There to encourage clients into a brothel operating there in the 1700s. The tiles were moved to the Museum of London. One of the more famous pub residents arrived at the Cheese in 1895, Polly the Parrot. Polly would entertain customers with imitations of fighting cats and a whole raft of expletives. And phrases such as, Hurry up with the pudding! Polly's imitation of a popping cork, followed by the glug, glug, glug of wine being poured, was legendary. Polly repeated this so many times on Armistice Day in 1918 that the bird fainted from exertion. Journalists had to refrain from discussing scoops anywhere near Polly in case the parrot repeated them in front of rival reporters. When Polly became an ex-parrot in 1926, 200 newspapers across the world wrote obituaries and the news was read out on radio. And they said has passed away. Everybody has heard of the gin palaces in England. Few, however, can have any adequate conception of them. The superabundant use of gas was a great source of amazement. At one establishment, a revolving light with many burners playing most beautifully over the door. At another, about 50 or 60 jets in one lantern, throwing out their capricious and fitful but brilliant gleams. Gaslight was integral to the modish spectacle, suggesting a garish vulgarity. Drunkards reportedly grew confused when other shopkeepers adopted similar illumination. The words of American visitor to London, Theodore Sedgwick. We've crossed Fleet Street to the Crown and Sugarloaf. A pub full of mirrors, etched plate glass windows and polished mahogany bars. This is very much in that glitzy style of the gin palace described by Theodore Sedgwick. The earliest gin palaces emerged in the 1830s when there was money to be made by selling the spirit. Landlords built swanky bars to tempt in the working classes. All a far cry from the torrid Georgian gin craze era. At the start of the 1700s, gin was so cheap that London was overtaken by a remorseless addiction to mother's ruin. By 1730, the city was home to some 8,000 gin shops. After half a century of misery, destitution and chaos, taxes and licensing brought the epidemic to an end. Sales boomed again in the 1830s, and grand palaces were built to elevate the image of gin. Well-lit pleasure houses where people could mingle and enjoy the spirit. The dark and dowdy public houses 
copied the gin palace style to compete. And the sugar loaf is typical of those later Victorian pubs. Not much bigger than a loaf, this tiny boozer is easily missed. Squeezed between its more famous Fleet Street neighbours, the Old Bell and the famous Punch Tavern. Which you would think was named after the fruity drink. But in 1841, it took its title from the satirical magazine Punch. Whose writers used to meet and drink here. Alcohol presumably inspiring the comedy magazine's punch lines. The magazine's first editor was Mark Lemon, with one writer joking, You can't make a good punch without lemon. And you might imagine that the magazine was named after Punch, the famous wooden puppet. But it was actually named after the drink. The original Punch pub was much larger. But when the family who ran it fell out, it was divided in two. The crown and sugar loaf was created from the rear part of the Punch Tavern. Alongside yet another pub, the Old Bell, which stands on the site of an earlier tavern called the Swan. 500 years ago, this was the premises of Fleet Street's first printer, Vinkin the Word. The Old Bell was originally built in 1678 by London's most famous architect, Sir Christopher Wren the only pub he ever designed, built to accommodate his stonemasons who were building the nearby St Bride's Church. The elaborately tiered spire is said to be the inspiration for the wedding cake. Maybe the great Sir Christopher Wren sat where we are now, drinking a toast to the stonemason's health. The George Inn is just south of London Bridge. From medieval times, this area was famous for its inns, taverns and pubs. The George is London's only surviving galleried coach inn, where horses and carriages would pull in to stay overnight. The George's Parliament Bar was the waiting room for passengers boarding stagecoaches. And the bedrooms upstairs were in the galleried part of the building. One man who frequented almost every London pub, came to the George, but not for alcohol. Charles Dickens was a regular visitor to the Middle Bar coffee room. Today, one wood beam wing survives what was originally a three-sided building with stables and a cobbled yard. In Tudor times, travelling troops of actors would perform in the courtyard in return for food and board. I took refuge in a little alehouse on Bankside and there watched the fire grow. The little alehouse, where diarist Samuel Pepys watched the Great Fire of London, was probably the anchor. There has been a tavern on this location for over 800 years, the first one known as the Castle on the Hoop. In 1616, when the Anchor Brewery was built, the pub became the Brewhouse Taproom. Michelin's travel guide states that the pub was... Rebuilt in 1676 after the Great Fire of 1666 destroyed it. Which is plain wrong, because the fire never reached south of the river. However, the pub did burn down in the 1770s and was rebuilt. The Anchor was at the heart of London's entertainment district. Close to the Elizabethan theatres, it's possible that Shakespeare and his acting company 
drank here. It was also a favourite place for river pirates and smugglers. During repairs at the start of the 19th century, a massive oak beam was removed to reveal hidey holes. Maybe used to conceal stolen goods, contraband and even outlaws. I was a little fellow with my poor white hat, little jacket and corduroy trousers. Frequently, I went into the bar of a strange public house for a glass of ale or porter. I remember I went into a public house in Parliament Street and asked the landlord behind the bar, What is your best, very best, ale, a glass? Tuppence, says he. Then, says I, just draw me a glass of that, if you please, with a good head to it. They served me with the ale, though I suspect it was not the strongest. And the landlord's wife, opening the little half-door and bending, gave me a kiss that was half admiring and half compassionate, but all womanly and good. The words of London's most enthusiastic pub crawler, Charles Dickens. This time, describing his visit as a young boy to the Red Lion pub in Westminster. The Lion is a political boozer. Directly opposite 10 Downing Street, it's the Prime Minister's local. The pub claims to have served every British Prime Minister up until Edward Heath in the 1970s. Including, not surprisingly, Sir Winston Churchill. It's a short walk from the pub to Parliament. And the Red Lion is one of the pubs close to Westminster that's fitted with a division bell, used to alert MPs of an imminent vote in the Commons. Once it rings, they have eight minutes to finish their drink and run to the House. Spotting MPs scurrying into Parliament was once a regular sport. Drinkers sometimes mistook the division bell for a fire alarm. The Red Lion is a cramped space, making it easy for political journalists to listen out for scoops. The pub's association with UK politics became notorious in 1997. Charlie Whelan, press advisor to the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, unofficially briefed journalists in the Lion that the UK would not be adopting the Euro. When Prime Minister Tony Blair found out, in a fit of outrage, he rang the pub to complain to Whelan, who replied, Sorry, Tony, it's too late. The two chairmen claims to be the oldest public house in Westminster, with a history going back to 1729. The pub sign features two men carrying a sedan chair, reminding us that this was once a working men's pub come waiting room. Sedan chairs were weatherproof boxes with a seat for the passenger, carried by two strong men. Footmen from the wealthy houses would come into the pub and summon the sedan chair porters. Who would collect the gentleman or lady from the hallway of their mansion and transport them to their destination. Dropping off their passengers, they returned to the pub to refresh themselves between jobs. The pub is located on Dartmouth Street, opposite the former site of the Royal Cockpit. A notorious gambling den and cockfighting arena. After the cockfights had finished, the sedan chair carriers would wait in the pub for fares. The sedan chair 
was the Uber of the 1700s. Holborn's Viaduct Tavern occupies a spooky spot. Over the road is the Old Bailey, the central criminal court. Some say the pub cellars were once prison cells for those condemned to death. That might explain the spectral presence that still crashes about in the cellar. Another explanation for the cells is that the pub is built on the site of a debtor's prison that was demolished in the 1850s. A few decades ago, when the landlord went down to the cellar, all of the lights suddenly went out and the door slammed shut behind him. Alone in the dark, he heard a voice whisper in his ear, It's just you and me down here now. There's a cheeky ghost too, who steals patrons drinks from the bar when they're not looking. Another spectre nicked a newspaper from the landlord's daughter and threw it on the floor. This pub is a proper Victorian gin palace with high ceilings, ornately decorated mirrors and intricate plasterwork. And it sports souvenir bullet holes. Some say the pot shots date from 1918 when a lubricated soldier misfired his Lee Enfield rifle on Armistice Night. Even by the standards of the day, that was quite the health and safety breach. Behind the bar rests a rickety old machine where patrons once bought tickets for drinks. This was so that the owner could control payments and not have to worry about staff stealing money. But there was nothing the landlord could do if the ghosts stole a drink during the night. The Six Jolly Fellowship Porters, a tavern of a dropsical appearance, had long settled down into a state of hale infirmity. In its whole constitution, it had not a straight floor, and hardly a straight line, but it had outlasted, and clearly would yet outlast, many a better trimmed building, many a sprucer public house. Externally, it was a narrow, lopsided, wooden jumble of corpulent windows heaped one upon another, as you might heap as many toppling oranges, with a crazy wooden veranda impending over the water. Indeed, the whole house inclusive of the complaining flagstaff on the roof, impended over the water, but seemed to have got into the condition of a faint-hearted diver who has paused so long on the brink that he will never go in at all. The words of Charles Dickens from his story, Our Mutual Friend. In the novel, the pub of dropsical appearance is called the Six Jolly Fellowship Porters. Based on a real East End Thameside boozer, called The Grapes. Which was run by Dickens's godfather as a working-class tavern serving the dockers of Limehouse Basin. The current building dates from 300 years ago. It replaced the first pub that was built here in the 1580s. If you had looked out of the back of The Grapes in 1587, you would have seen the boat called The Lion, commissioned by Sir Walter Raleigh to transport people to a new colony in America. Dozens of families sailed to Virginia and they all disappeared in mysterious circumstances. In 2011, when the grapes was up for sale, it was bought by a neighbour, the actor Sir Ian McKellen. And behind the bar, in pride of place, 
is the staff he used playing Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings films. Alongside a stuffed, fluffy cat, presented to McKellen by his friend and fellow thespian, Sir Patrick Stewart. This morning, a little after 10 o'clock, the three sailors convicted of the murder of Captain Little were conveyed in solemn procession to execution dock, there to receive the punishment awarded by law. On the cart on which they rode was an elevated stage. Behind, on another seat, two executioners. They were turned off about a quarter before 12 in the midst of an immense crowd of spectators. The whole cavalcade was conducted with great solemnity. This Thameside execution was reported in the Gentleman's Magazine in 1796. It took place next to the Prospect of Whitby, a pub which overlooks Execution Dock, where for more than 400 years, pirates, smugglers and mutineers met their end, including the sorry tale of the three convicted sailors. The 500-year-old Prospect is the oldest tavern on the riverside. When the tide is up, the building feels like it's part of the river. The pub's original name was the Pelican, but its dubious reputation led to its nickname, the Devil's Tavern. As a home to drunken sailors, smugglers, cutthroats and Thames pirates who robbed the merchant ships anchored on the river and chance their ill-gotten gains on cockfighting in the tavern's upstairs rooms. The infamous Judge Jeffreys lived nearby and would watch the criminals he convicted hang outside on execution dock. Executions were good for business for riverside taverns. Crowds lined the riverbanks. And when the condemned arrived at Wapping, they were allowed a quart of ale at a local public house. The executed bodies were tied to the foreshore to let two tides run over them, then removed and put in a gibbet. An iron cage containing the pirate corpses exhibited alongside the river to deter piracy. A fire burnt down most of the Devil's Tavern and a Victorian pub emerged on its site. Named the Prospect of Whitby after a Yorkshire coal transport that would unload on the river. The great artists Turner and Whistler sketched the views from the pub and on visits to the East End, the late Princess Margaret would sit in the bay window with a gin and tonic. And our favourite Victorian pub crawler, Charles Dickens, had the odd beverage here. There is a reminder of the whopping executions that stands on the pub's riverside. A hangman's noose. Truly doleful was the sight of that sad and mournful party. To see what sighs and sobs and prayers did sound among them. What tears did gush from every eye and pity speeches pierced every heart. Their reverent pastor falling down on his knees and they all with him. This was the scene in 1620, outside a pub here on the south side of the Thames in Rotherhithe. Which takes its name from the original mooring point for the Mayflower, the ship that carried pilgrims to the New World. Yes, 
The Mayflower actually started its voyage to the New World from Rotherhithe, not Plymouth. Back in 1620, the pub was known as The Ship. The Riverside Tavern witnessed busy preparations as 65 pilgrims boarded the vessel. And it's likely that some of the pilgrims visited the ship. There's a story that the ship's captain, Christopher Jones, moored here in Rotherhithe to avoid paying taxes further down the river. This Docklands alehouse was first built in 1550, but when it burnt down in a fire in 1780, it was replaced by the Spread Eagle and Crown. Taverns with this name usually sold German wines, catering to foreign sailors who came ashore on the Thames. The Spread Eagle and Crown was a seaman's post office, one of the only pubs in London that sold both US and British stamps. Back in the 1800s, seafarers passing through Rotherhithe had little time to spare, so they could order a pint and postage stamp in the pub and send letters to loved ones without leaving port. During the Second World War, the pub's roof was damaged by German bombing and was rebuilt. And in 1957, it was renamed the Mayflower. If visitors can show a family connection to the Pilgrim Fathers, they can sign the pub's Mayflower Descendants book. After carrying the pilgrims across the Atlantic, Captain Jones returned to London on the Mayflower boat, arriving back in port at Rotherhithe in 1621. He died less than a year later and was buried at St Mary's Church next to the pub. If you're sitting outside the Mayflower in spring, keep an eye on your pint. The landlady has seen tables floating alongside the terrace during really high tides. With drinkers unaware that the Thames is creeping up beneath their feet. The Dove sits next to the River Thames in the west of London. The pub website claims that King Charles II romanced his mistress, Nell Gwynne, here. But the pub was not built until the early 1700s. And the Merry Monarch died in 1685. Another more feasible claim is that the Scottish poet James Thompson wrote the words to the patriotic song Rule Britannia in the pub. But Thompson lived in Richmond and Hammersmith wasn't his local. Either way, we like the comic version of the song with the verse... Sing rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be married to a The public bar claims to be Britain's tiniest, measuring in at a cramped four foot by seven. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the smallest barroom in the world. Some say it was built so the landlord could get an alcohol licence at a time when two bars were needed for this. But it does mean you're up close with your fellow drinkers. If you have a look at the framed list of patrons that hangs over the lower bar's fireplace, it reads like a who's who's guide to acting royalty. From Richard Burton to Rex Harrison, from Diana Rigg to Diana Dawes. There's a small space to the right of the bar with a brass plaque showing where the floodwaters swamped the pub in 1928. The best seat in the house is on the balcony, 
Here you can sup a quiet pint as the sun goes down, watching the river traffic gliding silently by. It's of a blind beggar who had lost his sight And he had a daughter most beautiful bright Let me seek my fortune, dear father, said she And the favour was granted to charming Betsy We're at a legendary London East End boozer Named for the blind beggar of Bethnal Green Henry de Montfort. The story goes that in 1265, Henry was wounded at the Battle of Evesham and left blinded and wandering with no memory. He was forced to beg at the crossroads where the pub stands today. Nursed to health by a baroness, together they had a child named Bessie. The first blind beggar was an inn, built where today's red brick Victorian pub stands. At the boundary between Bethnal Green and Whitechapel. The pub was once attached to one of the biggest breweries in the East End. In 1902, the head brewer created a new type of bottled brown ale known as the sweetest beer in London. It was a favourite among the working people of Bethnal Green. In 1865, a crowd gathered outside the pub to hear William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, preaching his first sermon. Friends! I want to put a few straight questions to your souls. Have any of you got a child at home without shoes to its little feet? Yes, sir. Are your wives sitting now in dark houses waiting for you to return without money? Yes, Are you going away from here to the public house to spend on drink money that your wives need for food and your children for shoes? The Lord is good. Drunkards. Your sins on him were laid, that you might sin no more. God bless you. The Salvationist denounced the public house at its very front door. Whitechapel was home to rogues, ruffians and pickpockets who frequented the pub. In 1904, Bulldog Wallace, a member of the blind beggar pickpocket gang, stabbed a man in the eye here with an umbrella. In March 1966, London gangster George Cornell and his friend Albie Woods entered the Blind Beggar pub, ordered some light ales and then sat down next to the bar. At 8.30pm, the men were approached by rival criminals Ronnie Cray and Ian Barry. Cornell smiled and said sardonically, Well, just look who's here. As a warning to the barmaid and drinkers, Barry fired two shots into the ceiling. Cray walked towards Cornell, took out a wartime German pistol and calmly shot him in the forehead, turned and departed to a waiting car. Cray was sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder. No East End boozer is complete without a local football connection. The pub was frequented by West Ham and Tottenham manager Harry Redknapp and was owned by England football legend Bobby Moore. In 1966, the year he captained England to their only ever World Cup. But, mysteriously, he sold it within months. Another episode in The Blind Beggar's Strange Story. All things were made ready, they 
went hand in hand. Young Billy and Betsy were both made as one. She's the most beautiful damsel that ever was seen. The blind beggar's daughter of Bethnal Green. This Stories of Britain podcast was written and narrated by Mark Zakian and featured Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr. Londoner. Additional voices and song by Tony Lewis, with music by Alexander Nakarada. To hear the rest of our many history podcasts, including two more about beer, visit www.storiesofbritain.com and please like and subscribe. Your silks shall be lined with jewels, said he. If you can but love me, my charming Betsy.